I just feel led to give thanks to the Lord tonight. Lord, I want to thank you for the cross. Jesus, thank you for doing the will of the Father. And Lord, thank you for everyone in this room, me personally, Lord, for somehow opening our hearts to the message of the cross. It really is the power of God. Thank you for opening our understanding that we might know your love and your mercy, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for rescuing us out of darkness and bringing us into your marvelous light. Lord, we are grateful tonight. We are thankful, Lord. And God, we offer ourselves to you. We, as Romans 12 says, Lord, we give ourselves to you as a living sacrifice. Lord, let that truth, that light, you have given to us shine brightly through our lives, Lord, as we give out that same mercy you gave to us, to all those we come in contact with, all those you send us to, all those that you open the doors to share the love of Christ with. And God, I just want to thank you tonight for what you're doing in our midst. Thank you for what you're doing over at Meadowview. Thank you, God, for what you're doing um, at the Counseling Center. Lord, thank you for what you're doing with all of our different family members that, that we've prayed for, Lord, that we've witnessed to, Lord, for our neighbors, God, that we've shared the love of Christ with people at the gas station, people at Walmart, Lord. We thank you, God, that your word does not return void. Lord, we thank you, God, that you are always working. You love souls. You gave yourself for souls. You, you laid your life down. You're long-suffering. You are calling always sinners to come to you, to repent, to receive the mercy and grace you've provided for them through the work of the cross. And God, we continue to hold faith for all of those, whether we've prayed for or shared with or just um, shared the love of Christ, Lord, however you used us, Lord, and are using us, Lord, we pray, God, that you will bring forth the increase, that you will supernaturally work in every heart, Lord, and bring about salvation, bring about repentance, bring about, Lord, what only you can do in their hearts, Lord. I pray your light would burst forth in their inner man. I pray, Lord, you would open up their understanding, God, that they might know the love of Christ. So, God, we thank you tonight for what you are doing, God. And I pray you will continue to use our lives, use our vessels for your glory to be revealed in this earth, Lord. Pour us out. Pour us out for your purpose and your plan, Lord. Help us to be open, Lord. Help us to be led by the Spirit to the hurting, to the broken, to the blind. God, just have your way. Use us, Lord. And we thank you, God. We thank you, God, for your mercy in our lives, God. And we pray tonight. I want to pray tonight, Lord, just reading all the prayer requests and the different ways you've been working in different ones' lives. Lord, we're believing you, God, to do a miracle 
in every situation. Lord, you know every situation, God. We're believing you for miracles, supernatural miracles. In every person, every soul, Lord, that you bring us in contact with, we are believing for a miracle from heaven, just like you did in our lives, Lord. So, God, we come before you. We agree together for your will to be done. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to go ahead and split up. Okay, guys. Guys, you know what to do. Come on forward. Let's pray. God, we come before you, Lord. Father, we're grateful, grateful for your blood, grateful for your sacrifice, grateful that you're the one that keeps us, grateful that you never fail. Lord, today it's Valentine's Day, but the love that on Valentine's Day is nothing. It doesn't hold a candle to the love that you've given us. The sacrificial, the agape love that you give each and every day, that you continually do. You have new mercies. Your steadfast love endures forever. So, Father, I pray for each of the men here, Father. I pray for myself, for all of us, that we would have hearts that are grateful, remembering what you have done and are doing and will do. And out of that joy, out of that gratitude, that we'll see others the way that you do. We see so many who don't know you, Father. Help us to extend your heart and love to them. Why you choose to work through cracked earthen vessels, I don't know. Obviously, it must give you the greater glory, Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you get every bit of the glory you deserve. Because, Jesus, you deserve it all. In your name, amen. Okay, so today we're going to be starting with the study on First Peter. So, you're welcome to turn there if you'd like. Pastor shared something on Sunday about Peter. And he talked about how Jesus had such tender mercy, had such love towards him, that he brought him back into the fold. So we know, what do we know about Peter? We know that he was obviously one of the 12 apostles, one of the 12 disciples at the beginning, right? We know that Peter was in the inner circle of the three, okay? And then he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Let's start with 1 Peter 1. 
It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So the term, he's an apostle, you know, we don't hear so-and-so teacher of, okay? The only one who's given a title in that sense are the ones who are apostle. And so he's speaking from authority. When he's an apostle of Christ, he's talking about somebody who, as I just said, was the initial 12 in the, in the inner circle of three. And in the Gospels, the four Gospels, nobody besides Jesus is mentioned as much as Peter. No one else. No one's name is brought up as much. Okay? And what do we think about Peter? We think about being his hothead, right? That he's kind of loud and kind of brash, right? Puts his foot in his mouth. He's bold, though, right? You know, we know that Jesus rebuked Peter more than any other disciple. But Peter was also the only one who dared to even rebuke Jesus, right? Only one who said, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Like, you're telling Jesus that? But he did. Okay? Nobody confessed Jesus more boldly than Peter, or even more accurately. But also, nobody denied Jesus more forcefully and publicly than him. Jesus praised Peter more than any other disciple, but he also called him Satan. Right? What do we know about Peter and the disciples? In Mark 1, 35 to 39, it was Peter who led the other disciples to hunt for Jesus. It was Peter who listened to the direction of, of Jesus during a massive catch of fish in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. It was he in Matthew 10, verses 1 to 42, he went with a unique outreach, outreach trip with the other disciples. He's the one who stepped out of the storm, in the raging storm, he's the one who stepped out of the boat, okay, and walked on water with Jesus. In John 6, 68 and 69, Peter's the one who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. As I mentioned, it was the inner circle of three. He was the one who saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain in glory. He saw him with Moses and Elijah in Matthew 17, verses 1 to 9. He's the one who asked Jesus, you know, he's thinking, he's hot stuff. He's saying, hey, how many times should I forgive? Normally, they said, the Jews would say, three times is enough. If you give somebody three times, you've done good. Fourth time, you can smack them, okay? Jesus said, I'll forgive him seven times. And uh, no, Peter said, I'll forgive him seven times. And Jesus responds, no, you have to forgive him seven times 70, which basically can be interpreted, you have to keep on forgiving. There is no definite number. When they encountered the rich young ruler, it was the Peter who said, what would we receive for giving everything up to follow Jesus? And when Jesus offered to wash his feet, Peter said, no, 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 you can't do that. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you're not a part of me. 
And Amir goes, okay, then wash me from head to toe. I'm all in. I'm all in. In Matthew 26, 30 to 35, Peter heard Jesus predict that he would deny him three times. Starting, actually 31, starting 31, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die for you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. So he wasn't alone, but so said all the disciples, but he's the one who spoke him. And when they were in the garden and the Pharisees came and the temple guards came to get him. He was the one who cut off the right ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And so we talk about then Matthew 26. Peter does deny Jesus three times, cursing and swearing, not just, hey, I don't know him. Like, no! Just as emphatically he said he would, den- he would die for Jesus, he as emphatically, if not more so, denied him. Okay? But when he heard about the resurrection from the women, he runs, he's the first one out of the gate, running with John. Now John was faster, got there first, okay? But the point is, he was ready to go. He wanted Jesus. And it was Jesus who met with Peter personally on the resurrection and publicly restored him in front of the other disciples. And that's what Pastor was talking about, the restoration He talked about feed my sheep. Talked about what love was like. So, one of the things Hebert says, I love when he says this. You know, Peter says, I'm an apostle. And he's not saying it to be boastful but he's saying it as if it's a clear statement of fact. Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ, or I'm this based on Christ. Peter knows it's of Christ. He doesn't even have to add that on. He just, I'm an apostle. God has appointed me for this role. And I want you to turn now, so to Acts chapter two, verses 14 to 38. But before we get there, I gave you a backdrop within the Gospels that talk about Peter. You see this guy who's bold, who's passionate, who's first to step out in faith, but first to put his foot in his mouth. Okay? Some would call him brash, intemperate. Okay? And then Jesus speaks to him, and he's restored. He's humbled by it, and they pray, seeking the Holy Spirit. So right after the Holy Spirit comes on them in power, okay, in chapter 2, that's the beginning of that, when the Holy Spirit descends upon them like tongues of fire, they're speaking in various tongues, and everybody's going, they're out of their heads and out of their minds. 
okay? And I want you to hear, this is going to be a long segment, but I want you to understand how God used Peter. In, starting uh, verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since only the third hour of the day, that's 9 a.m. But this is what is spoken by the prophet Joel. And he's now going to speak from chapter 2, verses 20 to 32. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old shall your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and the vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that who whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay? And he's talking about what's going to happen. And he's talking about what's going to happen that not yet occurred. That's when he's talking about the coming of Jesus. But then he goes and talks to them directly. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David, now quoting from Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And then Peter says, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foresaw this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God was raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but says himself, now he's quoting from Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then Peter says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when he heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, 
repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. For you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as our Lord will call. Now, I know that was a long 15 verses that we went through. This is Peter right after Pentecost. Right there when he's getting the power of the Holy Spirit anointing him. The same Peter who was bold and brash is now boldly speaking and proclaiming God. The same fisherman who was untrained, he later says in Acts 4, he was uneducated, some say illiterate, we don't know for sure, is now boldly quoting scripture all through the Old Testament and speaking through the revelation of God. Okay, and this is somebody who's lived his life following Jesus. Those three years, and look how soon this was right after Jesus died. This is a few months later. He didn't suddenly get all this education all at once. You know, we think of the disciples and we can look back and go, like, come on, guys, get your act together. Don't you know what's going on? No, they didn't. Nobody really could get it consistently. There was a spiritual darkness and a blindness over them. And until the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were never fully able to see things clearly. But as soon as it came upon them, they saw everything clearly. And you get to see that. Everything suddenly came into place all at once. Okay, and so this is, you know, we believe Jesus died around 30 AD, give or take, 30, 33. And then we're going to move forward. So we're going to hear him a little bit in Acts and Paul talks about confronting Peter at the Jerusalem church and where he was sitting, where things are. But then you go 30 plus years later when we go to 1 Peter. This is a guy who was in his 20s or 30s when he met Jesus, probably 20s, okay? And he's now well into his 50s, maybe early 60s, okay? And so 1 Peter's written by a man who's been following Jesus. He spoke boldly. Okay, so the last time you really hear him speak or proclaim the gospel was right after Pentecost. There's a little bit, as I mentioned, with his interaction with Paul where he's sitting, but he's basically following and leading the church. Right, he was imprisoned in jail, and then an angel breaks off his chains and he walks to his, we, we, we believe, a cousin's house and, and John Mark's house, and you know they don't even believe he's there. Rhoda doesn't know and says, oh, he's there, and leaves him at the gate, and then they eventually get him in. But the point being is, there's been this thing where he's been following Christ. And when he speaks in First Peter, you're speaking of somebody who's lived a life for the Lord, who has a lot of wisdom. And so you're hearing somebody who's been tempered. So as we, initially when we're young, we tend to be bold and passionate. That's part of the strength of youth too. But as you get older, there's wisdom. You've learned, right? You've seen the mistakes you've made. I certainly seen at least some of them. The more you live, the more mistakes you see you've done. <laughs> and I'd say you haven't seen successes too, but I suppose maybe it's the mistakes that haunt me more than the successes do. Okay? And fortunately, God's, Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover all that. So this is the, letting you know the backdrop, and I want you to get with Peter. When he speaks in First Peter, and when we listen to it, I want you to understand it within that context. So he declares who he is, 
right? We read that 1 Peter 1, chapter 1. He's an apostle, and he's now speaking to the people in basically what we call modern Turkey, the northern part of modern Turkey, okay? So all that area, when you talk about Asia, we think of Asia like the continent of Asia, which includes Russia and China and India, but he's really talking about Asia at that time, which refers to just one province of what we call modern Turkey, okay? And so he's speaking to the people there, and, and, and he, he says, he calls about that to the, the word here that I like is to the pilgrims, okay? To the pilgrims of the dispersion. Other translations will say aliens or strangers. I prefer the word pilgrims, and I want to understand why that's an important word, okay? And of the dispersion, okay, What's happened is, he said that, you know, we just read from in, in Acts, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. He got, he got to see God spread out. So they were there at that time. People came at, from all over to come back and then they went out, but so many more went out and the word has gone forth in 30 years, exploded gone all through Turkey, all through Rome. It's exploded all through the Middle East and into the Roman Empire. And he's speaking to these people, the dispersion, the people who've spread out. And the word for pilgrims is peroepidemois. And it basically means somebody with a, who's a temporary resident in a foreign land. An early Christian writing from the epistle of Diognetus said, pilgrims are they that inhabit the lands of their birth, but as temporary residents of it. They take their share of all responsibilities as citizens and endure all disability as aliens. Every foreign land is their native land, and every native land a foreign land. They pass their days upon earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. So, I want you to get a sense in the Old Testament, continually, pilgrims, and why that's important, because we're all pilgrims. And the sooner we get that, the sooner we appreciate that, the sooner it becomes part of who we are, the sooner we'll understand what our purpose is. So Abraham was initially a stranger in the land of Canaan. Joseph was certainly a stranger in Pharaoh's court in Egypt. Moses was a stranger in Egypt. Daniel was a stranger in the court of Babylon. So every child of God is separated by grace to be a stranger in this ungodly world. So this world, we're going to be a stranger to its views, its thoughts, its desires, its prospects, its anticipations, in our daily walk, in our speech, in our mind, in our spirit, in our judgments, and in our affections. We will be strangers from the world's company, from its maxims, from the world's fashions, and the world's spirit. To be a pilgrim means when you look at where things are and when you look at the media, I look at that and I go, what's going on here? Okay? That's actually a good thing because it's clearly shown the strange. The illusion we had is we thought 
the world can be Christian. It can't be. It cannot be. No country can be Christian. There is no Christian country. There only are people who have the Spirit of God within them, who have the Holy Spirit on our Christ followers. So the church isn't isolated to a country. The church are the people who are surrendered to Jesus Christ, who have him as Lord and Savior, and that's around the world. So the nation of believers is the believers around the world. You should have much more affinity with a believer in another country who's passing sold up to Jesus than you do for somebody that you've, who doesn't know Jesus down the street, even somebody that you grew up with, even your own family. Even your own family. That's the hard part for us. We look at the affinity based on worldly decisions. Oh, we like to play pickleball or like to go golfing or we both like to these movies or that's music. And that's what we make our relationship with. And the church in America has done these affinity-based churches based on what they tend to do, like to do together. And we go to churches based on worldly desires. I'm a part of this church because I like that they do this that I like. But is that what God wants or is that my personal preference? And what is selling here is our preferences need to be Christ-like, not based on what we think. So when he says pilgrim, that's who we are. We're all pilgrims. We're all going through this earth for a season, for a time, our citizenship being really in heaven first and foremost. And so what Peter's talking about is about that. He's gonna talk about that again and again, where our citizenship is. And if we can understand that, we are here but for a season, we'll get a main thrust of what Peter's trying to talk about. So moving to second verse. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Wow, that's a lot there. So, this thing about foreknowledge of God the Father. And I've shared this before. We don't understand God. God is a being who's eternal, who exists outside the space-time continuum. Okay? So, him, all reality is now. So, the idea of God knew beforehand... There is no beforehand for God. It's all now. We don't have a grasp of that. Okay, so when said Jesus died before the foundations of the world, basically because everything to God happens now. And that's hard for us to grasp because we are within this sequential time sequence. And God is not. He encounters time at any point and all points at the same moment. Okay, so the idea of foreknowledge, the point is, God has knowledge of everything of all reality and all potential realities. There's nothing beyond the capacity of God. Nothing beyond the capacity of God. So when you get that, that's why, and he's good. Nothing beyond his capacity. Satan, angels, limited beings. Humans, definitely limited beings. God, not a limited being. Not a limited being. Existing outside of everything. And so transcendent, that's where you get transcendent. He's outside of everything, but also intimately connected with everything. 
imminent within everything. Okay? So, God, so when we talk about election, this is where the controversy between people who believe certain things with Arminianism versus Calvinism. I don't have it figured out. We're not going to have it clearly figured out. And I love what George Whitfield says. He says, let a man go to grammar school of faith and repentance before he goes to the university of election and predestination. I haven't got faith and repentance mastered yet. I'm nowhere near ready to go to the university of election and predestination. Okay? Our priority needs to be not focused on those other things. Okay? Our priority needs to focus on, boy, there's a lot better I need to get at my faith and my repentance. A lot more that I have to understand. Suffice it to say, God is sovereign over everything. And we're responsible for our actions. Okay? Those are the big take-home messages. We're responsible for our actions. God's sovereign over everything. Okay? And if we can get that, then those other issues of whether he was chosen before, who was elect, once saved, always saved, all those things are really secondary issues. We won't have it figured on this side. Nothing is a surprise to God. Okay? So for people who believe in open theism, we do not adhere to that here, that basically God doesn't know things of the future. That's a limitation of God. God knows all things. Okay? That's what omniscient really means. Okay, um, D.L. Moody said this about the elect that I like. The elect are the whosoever wills, and the non-elect are the whoever whosoever won't. Okay, and so we won't know. We won't know who's going to be. We won't know who's going to where things are. You know, it's not like people have a mark on their body. Oh, these are the elect. Okay? You won't even know based on how they respond. You can know a little bit about based on the fruits, but there are people who seem to have a lot of fruits and are not following to the end. We won't clearly know. God knows. God knows the heart. I don't know your heart. There's times we can have intimate moments together where I get a sense of it for a moment and you get a sense of mine, but I don't know it all the time. I'm not with you 24 hours 7. God is. God is. He knows our heart. He knows our heart better than we do. And he wills and he wants all, none, no one to perish. He does not want any to perish. He's that good. But he knows some will. And he's grieved by it. But he rides away and people will choose to reject him. And within that, it gives God glory. And I don't fully understand that. I know part of it is the choice of where things are that people have. But you have to understand that God's will and desire in his heart is for everyone. And that's what he wants us to have. The heart for everyone. To look at, and we look at people who are hard-hearted and we look at people who are callous or cursing or swearing and stealing and mean. Um, Lauren showed a great um, movie. We got to watch it a couple of times at, at the house of the uh, Buttercream Gang. And he showed it here with the kids, and you got to see this guy who looked like he was a hopeless case. And the point is, that's not our call to make. It's not our call to judge. 
It's our call to continually to reach out. So I want you to get that from when we talk about the elect. Oswald Chambers says this, and I want you to hear this. Commenting on, I have chosen you. Keep the note of greatness in your creed, meaning it's not that you have God, but that he has got you. Why is God at work in me, bending, breaking, molding, doing just as he chooses for only one purpose, that he may be able to say, this is my man, my woman. When once a saint puts his confidence in the election of God, no tribulation or affliction can ever touch that confidence. When we realize there's no hope of deliverance in human wisdom, in human rectitude, that means what I do and my work, or in anything that we can do, this is the finest cure for spiritual degeneration or spiritual sulks. Charles Simeon says, God has not chosen us because we are holy or because he foresaw we should become holy, but in order that we might be holy. His choosing is because he wants a holy people. He wants us to be the way like Jesus. He wants more like Jesus. He wants more like him. He's given us something angels don't have. Okay, that possibility of choice, the possibility of reasoning, possibility of faith. Some of the qualities, um, the French would call it the je ne sais quoi, that means I don't fully understand. Okay, things that are necessary that are like him. That's where we're creating the image of God, which angels are not. And so there's a potential for us to do something that will be amazingly beautiful, that will give God phenomenal glory in heaven, and that's what he wants for each one of us. Because he's that good. Not a God who hates, not a God who condemns, not a God who punishes. All of us deserve hell. We, in the church, all of us deserve hell. Each day, because of our thoughts and choices, we deserve hell. Each day. But by his great mercy, he has given us this inheritance. And we'll move to that next. Hmm. Oh, actually, before we go to that, let me talk a little bit about sprinkling of the blood. Um, sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, he's the only one who uses that. And we, we sing songs about one drop in the blood of Christ. And we'll, if you read and spend time in Leviticus and Exodus, you get to hear over and over what the sprinkling of blood is. Um, so in Exodus 24, verses 5 to 8, in the Old Covenant, this is where blood was sprinkled, the blood of animals because that was the most innocent they could have. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So when we do communion, it's based on this. But we have the blood of Christ. 
So you think of the wine as that idea is the blood that was in the old covenant has now been replaced by Jesus and the sprinkling of his blood. So we have a new covenant with the blood of Christ over us, making us clean, replacing what was in the old covenant. But also there's a blood applied also in Exodus 29, 21 with Aaron and his sons. And you shall take some of the blood that's on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And in Leviticus 14, 6, and 7, a purification ceremony for a cleansed leper. As for the living bird, he shall take it, the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop, and dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle it, sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. So the blood was a symbol in the Old Testament to make things holy, sanctified. Even more so in the New Testament, the blood of Christ sanctifies us. The blood of Christ makes us clean. So when we do communion and come to it, we're asking for God to cleanse us. That's why if you have a problem, if there's an issue you have with your brother, you're supposed to deal with it first in your heart and if necessary in person before you come and receive the offering because you're basically saying, God, I come before you, do this remembrance, but also of the holiness that you've conferred to me. And so when they're talking about that sprinkling, he's talking about the holiness that Christ's blood does for us. So I want you to get that. There's so much, and go on, theology over and over. But let's move on to 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5, and this is probably one of my favorite verses in all of Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, we like I talked about in terms of scripture memorization, back in the day I used to have these scripture memory, memory um, songs, and this is one of the ones that we got to sing, and it was easier to remember because there was so much in here. But this is so much to understand because this tells us of what God has done and is doing for us. And we have an inheritance we have an inheritance, okay? Blessed, God is such a great, who, are, who his abundant mercy, he didn't have to, and he says begotten us, that means the same thing as being born again. He has made us anew and alive again. We are now a new creation in Christ Jesus, right? Second Corinthians 5, 17, the old has gone, the old has passed away, the new has come. So what do, we, what do we have? Well, we have an inheritance, right, to a living hope. We don't have an understanding of hope very well. 
God is trying to teach us. Teach us about love, because we don't understand love very well. Teach us about faith, because we don't understand faith very well. And teach us about hope. And Jesus is a living hope. It's a day by day, always renewed, infinite hope. Never depleted. Always available. Just as mercies to go in. We have a hope in Christ. No matter how bad your day is, no matter how much you screw up, okay, there's certain days that are just terrible, just horrible. No matter how much you screw up, you can go, I repent. Please forgive me. And you immediately can connect and avail yourself of that hope. And so when we don't have a hope, when we're worried or anxious, we can't perceive that hope. When we're not operating on that hope, we're not empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're not empowered by the Holy Spirit. So it takes faith, but that hope, the Holy Spirit is working. When you're talking to somebody, it's gonna be that hope, the hope that the same mercy that God showed you, he will show to that person. You know when you count that he wants to. The hope that they will see that love of Jesus in and through you, in spite of all your shortcomings. That somehow you'll be able to be a blessing and, and they can see Christ. The hope that you can become an example for the people around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ around you. That you can love Jesus enough to encourage them. That you don't have to operate in your own flesh. And when we choose our own sin, we're not walking in that hope. When we choose to give over or do that, we're not walking in that hope. The hope to know that God is with you at each moment, living hope. And that living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, so it's powerful, and it gives us an inheritance. It's a promise. It's a hope with a promise. A promise that we're gonna be with him for eternity. A promise that we will be pure, sanctified. And you look at yourself and go, I am so far from it. I fight my thoughts every morning I wake up. It's like, why do I, come on, I should be over by now. Right? Who doesn't believe that? Don't we all say, I should be over, I shouldn't be thinking that. We all do. But we get to choose, and God knows that, and he wants us to have the hope. And so when we get go, God, please help me. I trust in you. And he says, God promises. So the hope we have is in that promise. That living hope is based on the promises of God. Somebody said this really good when you're going through your Bible to write down every time you see a promise of God, put down a P or something on there that you can note it so that you remember and count all the promises of God. You can look online. There's lots of different things about promise of God. They used to sell books about it back when books were more popular. But uh, the point is, and partly because we need a book for everything and now we can just get it on the internet. But there's a hope, a living hope, and that inheritance that we have that's a hope is... incorruptible, and undefiled. We are corruptible. The hope we have is not corruptible. It's completely pure. Cannot be corrupted. Satan cannot corrupt that. The promise that God has for you to sanctify you, Satan cannot corrupt that. Satan can't defile that. He can't blemish it. Satan did not blemish 
Job. He attacked him, did not blemish Job. So we have these trials, and we think through these times, even when we're struggling, that God has forsaken us, or we get down on ourselves because we think we should be walking around like everything is chill. Everything is, I'm peace. Yeah, I'm cool. Nothing bothers me. Everything's okay. I'm not affected by anything. I know. I believe in heaven. Yeah, we're going to be fine. I mean, it's good. And you see people who are like that, and you're thinking, yeah, they're either delusional or they really don't know what's going on. <laughs> or they're faking it. More likely they're faking it, right? They're pretending. They're, okay? They're, they're really not being sincere. Right? But the hope that we have in God can give us peace. And so we have to speak that to ourselves. That transformation of our mind has to be, we have to speak the truth of God. So when I say this is a good scripture verse to memorize, is something that we can use to talk to ourselves to recalibrate us each and every day when we wake up and our thinking is not based on Christ. It's based on the world. Remember we talked about being pilgrims? We're not native to this land. We're sojourners. We're travelers through. We're going to be here for a season for a time. That's where our hope is, is in heaven. This is what we're talking about. It's all about our citizenship in heaven. This is all about who we really are. God's outside time. Guess what? He sees you now in heaven. Because it's all now. He knew you before you were formed, before you were born, so he knows who you were even before you were born. He sees all the stages of who you are like it's now. He doesn't see you becoming. God's in being. He's not a becoming God. He's eternal. He's unchanging. He's always in a state of being. We're becoming. But God's in being, and he sees us that same way. And he sees everything with the hope. So trust in that hope, not out of condemnation. Don't waste your energy and time on that. Condemning others or yourself. But rather take hold of the hope, the living hope, undefiled, incorruptible, and will not fade away. It's more real than anything that we know. Right? The world will pass away. His word will not pass away. It has more substantiality, has more reality than this terra firma, this world. It's more important. It will last forever. His word will endure forever. That's what the word says, right? So I like this. I have to give credit to MacArthur on this. John MacArthur says, one result of our hope is a willingness to sacrifice the present on the altar of the future. It's contrary to human nature. You know, young children, difficult time waiting for something they want. Delayed gratification, very hard. You can have it later. No, no. Okay, right? My father, you know, he says, my father warned me repeatedly while I was growing up not to sacrifice the future on the altar of the immediate. The world wants what it wants now. The Christian has a different perspective. He's willing to forsake the present glory, comfort, and satisfaction of this present world 
for the future glory that is his in Christ. In contrast to the buy now, pay later attitude prevalent in the world, the Christian is willing to pay now and receive it later. What makes Christians willing to make the sacrifices? Hope, based on faith, that the future holds something far better than the present. Our world, what's happening here, particularly in the West, everything is meeting gratification now. You want it? Used to be, you'd have to wait. You can have TV anytime you want to watch it. It's on demand. Used to be, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, you could barely have to, you have to turn your TV off because they had that screen with the Native American with a headdress on it. Now, your TV anytime you want. Watch anything you want, anytime you want. You want to order something? You can just go right on your phone and order anything you want and get it anywhere. doesn't matter where you live. You want to talk to somebody? You can call them anytime you want around the world. We can fly most any places. Everything is so much more meeting our instant gratification. Everybody's in debt. We have trillions and trillions of dollars of, of American debt. Because we don't want to delay for future. I want it now. We think debt's okay because the government's in debt. Everybody's in debt. We can pay it now and you know pay it later or whatever. That is contrary to what Christ is about. Christ paid it now for future benefit. And he wants us to do the same. All through history, Christians continually paid it now for future glory. That delayed gratification in that sense. And some say that's wrong and they shouldn't have. You really don't know because what are you putting your confidence in? It really comes down to do you really believe? The challenge for us is sometimes we want to hedge our bets. I'll do a little bit in the world and a little bit in the kingdom. And a little bit in the world and a little bit in the kingdom. And they don't mix, that's right. That's the hard part, and we're all guilty of it. We all want that, and he's saying, let go of the world. Not saying you're not involved in the world, we just talked about that. You're a pilgrim, you're going through it. You're gonna, you're gonna be responsible in the world. You're gonna take responsibilities on, but you're not always gonna take all the privileges of that. Because you realize there's another purpose, there's another plan for us. We have something reserved for us in heaven. That's more important than what we have here. That's what we're living for. And we let that drive us. We let that be our reason to be. The French say the raison d'etre, reason to be, reason to exist. And if we let that motivate us, we can be encouraged because his words are true. And even though the world tells us a lie every day, every day it tells us a lie. He says you can have it all, but you can't. I read story of story, and you hear people who have millions of dollars. Pinnacle of career, Boris Becker, you know, who was a phenomenal tennis player, you know, after he got two Wimbledons, youngest Wimbledon winner ever, you know, thinking of suicide. I'm like, why? But, you know, these musicians, sports players who came in, suicide over and over, they see there's no hope. There's no hope in this world. There is no hope in this world. Do we chase after it? Our hope is in Christ, an inheritance that will not fade. And we need to tell it to each other, especially when we want something. When we want something of the world. 
You know, I saw that bumper sticker. You may have seen that, you know, people in a, I call it a jalopy. That's what they used to call the kind of beat up little cars, kind of going driving down the road. And the bumper says, you know, storing up my treasures in, in heaven. Okay? You know, you may have seen that. Basically, I'm not spending it on my material things here and now. But there is some truth to that. But it's, the storing up treasure is not just on your material expenses. It's on your thought life. It's on everything that you do. It's your way of being. Your treasures in heaven has to be your way of living, not just on your expenses. It's more important in your heart than it is on the things that you do. So we need to speak that again and again into ourselves, that we have this inheritance we're now heirs of Christ. Instead of just being creatures, we have a status better than Adam and Eve did. We have a status that's better than they did because we did, and we are brothers and sisters of God. How does that work? How amazing is that? What an opportunity. How can that encourage us that we can live more for Christ? In Numbers 18.20, the Lord says to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. The Lord is our portion. That's our inheritance. We have become, like it says priesthood, right? It talks in, in Hebrews, we are priesthood believers because we have now supplanted that we are his people he is our inheritance we have Christ that's what we have now and that's part of the imperishable portion and how are we kept reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time kept by the power of God it's God who keeps us. Praise God. Know that in your corner, you, know, you think you're on the battle and you're, you know, if you watch Rocky and you see him fight, okay, when he was fighting Apollo Creed, and I hope Carl Weathers had a relationship with Jesus. He just, he's somewhere in eternity. But he was fighting, he had Burgess Meredith in his corner encouraging him on and, you know, telling him what he needed to do and, how we need to, to fight him, but we have a God who's fighting for us. He's not just sitting in the corner. He's in the ring with us. He is doing most of the battle. He's lifting our arms up and helping us. We just have to follow with his flow to let him do what he wants to do. The Lord is keeping us. We have to trust and believe him. That's the faith. That's our responsibility. That surrender and that faith is, I believe you, God, that you're going to do the best thing in my moment of now to help me. As I turn to you right now, you're going to help me. I don't know what to do. Help me, Lord. Okay, great place to be. I believe in you, God. I believe that you're going to give me the way out of this trouble. Show me the way. I'm in this trial. I don't know what to do. Help me, Lord. Some team may say, wait, I need you to get stronger. You're taking a pounding in the ring. He goes, yeah, I know. But that gets you tougher. I need you to take some. I need you to be stronger so you show others what to do. 
That consolation, that thing that we go through, that trial is not just for you, it's for others. We're not in this just for ourselves. Do I look at my circumstances of thinking, how can my trial be a blessing to my brother beside me? Probably not, but definitely should. Definitely should. The trial I'm going through is not just about me. It is to make me like Christ too, but that's not all it's about. God's very efficient. He's perfect in all of his ways. Everything I'm going through is for the blessing, and you'll see that in your life. And as we see what he's doing, how he's unfolding it, he's doing it to bless others. And the neat thing that I get to see here is we're doing that. But we need to do it even more and trust in that more, and he'll bring more people into our lives to a blessing for others. And as we can communicate by faith what we have, and through the last time what he's talking about there... As I mentioned earlier, we won't know everything now. But when we get to heaven, we will. You've seen some things, and you go through and you're like, why did that happen? You know, it wasn't my plan to stick around this area. I had the house back in Springfield, could have gone back there, but God kept me here. There's a plan that God has and he brings you into a place. He kept me or drew me to this place and kept me here. Then I started to come to Lighthouse and I couldn't be happier than being here. And it worked out. I looked at the house across the street the year before and didn't buy it. didn't want to. It was 90 degrees and hot and I did not want to do another renovation all over again. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. You know, really don't want to go over it again. It's like, it's not what I want. God had a plan, and I'm so grateful that it worked out. God works out. And I see a little bit about it, but we don't see all of it. And as you can see, and that's why writing down or journaling or writing some things down, you get to see how does God work? What has he shown you? Why he's brought you here and what he's taken you through? Ended up with this duplex that I had that I wasn't going. I wanted to help two couples out. One that worked out well with my with my brother and sister with Joe and Sarah, and it worked out so well, but I had this other one, thought it would help them, and it didn't, and it landed in my lap, and I'm going, okay, now I have three houses, what am I going to do? And to realize, for a while, we have a, a word things lords out, tell people, I don't even have one house, I know, I know, I know, get it. But, <laughs> but it, the point is, and now, it's just been perfect with Brian and Joseph having a place to live, and God worked that out, and I still have this other side right now, we don't know what's going to work out, but God's working out. And Jason now buying this place now to bring a place for other people to go through. God's working it all out. Even the place we're living, you're living, God's working it all out. It's not by accident that you're there. There's things, and he has a different plan and program with each of us because there's different things he needs for you to do, for us to do. We have different missions and different plans, and that's what he's trying to do. That's what he's trying to work out. Now pray for me tomorrow at 5 o'clock. There's a showing in my house down in Springfield. I pray that it sells. <laughs> Please, Jesus. Okay? <laughs> I want less things to deal with. I don't want more irons in the fire. I've got too many as it is. But God has a plan for all of that. Because of those irons, it leads me to go, okay, God, I really, really, really need help. Like, really. No, like, really. <laughs> That's a good place to be. I need, really, really need help. When we start each morning, God, I really, really need you. I'm going to trust in you by faith, but I really, really need you. 
Help me today to glorify you. Okay, I know that was a lot. We have a few minutes left, so I'm going to open up to some questions where things are. Um, we'll move on to this next little bit. There's so much in this first chapter. And this was partly an introduction to give you a sense of what Peter was. Does anybody have any questions? Good question. Um, most of that time, we, again, we're not sure exactly when First Peter was written. Most authorities believe it's written somewhere around 63 to 67 A.D. Some say it was later. Um, definitely after 70, when they went into Jerusalem and tore down the walls, there was a dispersion of Jews, okay? Um, but people have spread just based on um, the Jews have spread because of trade in that area. As we mentioned with the roads there and traffic, it was a major travel port in the Roman Empire through Jerusalem, through that section. So some went on their own. But because the Romans, you know, created all this great infrastructure with their roads, people were able to travel and move. And so a lot of people just traveled on their own, just like we have now, even more so. So that dispersion of the people spread out. Like you have, you know, here, right? We have people from around the world who've now just come to America. But we also have Americas, Americans who are living in other parts of the world. Right? People have just moved all around. And so that's the kind of dispersion they're talking about. People have kind of spread out and people have gone far off. So when Peter first talked in Jerusalem, it was mainly to the Jews who were there at that time, okay, near Pentecost. And now he's talking to mostly a Gentile crowd, more than Jews. You're correct, and that was at that time initially when they were talking about that earlier when, he first, uh, when Paul first wrote about that, and that may have been the decade before. But Peter here is talking to even more of that. So um, Peter was, and his focus was mainly in Jerusalem, but he's also talking to both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Does that help at all? Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. Well, it's God's people more than a country. He's given them the land, but they're still the chosen people. We believe that Israel is still the, the covenants that God had in the Old Testament, um, we believe, are still relevant. Okay, so unlike traditional Presbyterianism that believes in a changed covenant, and we can get complicated about that, that the church is now Israel and all that, we do not believe that. We believe that God has a plan for the church, for the believers, but God still has a plan for his chosen people that he have with Israel, okay? But all of that plan is still going to be through Christ. Yeah. 
Okay, it's not like apart from Christ. Okay? So you have to realize everything of salvation is going to be through Christ, Jew or Gentile. But within that, he is not forsaken. Even though the Old Testament prophets, you know, Paul, uh, sorry, Peter was talking from Joel, and so Joel was prophesizing. He, Joel was obviously speaking to the Jewish audience, to the Israelites, okay? He was speaking to people in Israel, okay? But God knew that. So the words he had at that time did apply to them then, but also applied to what Peter was talking about when he was in Jerusalem speaking to the crowd then and also to us now. Okay, so it expands to all that sense of time where things are. So yes, I still believe he, he has a plan for Israel um, separate from the Gentiles. Okay? But still under Christ. Go ahead. Yes? Praise God. Yeah, and, uh, you know, one other thing I was thinking of when you were saying that who was the miraculous touch when Jesus told him, Lord, we, we work. You know, all night. All night. You know, <laughs> that was another instance where. And he got to see the miracles of Jesus. Yeah. He got to see all that and yeah. still believe. And so, A, we can cut ourselves a little slack that we, don't, we have some challenges with. Peter was there and the disciples were there. But Joseph says, he didn't have the spirit. But boy, when he did, wow. Wow. <laughs> okay? So what's available through the Spirit? And I want to let you know, that's available to, for us. Anybody else? Okay, let's close in prayer. Um, David, would you close us in prayer, please? Lord, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for your word. God, just remind us of your goodness. God, remind us that we're not alone. Remind us of the things we go through, not just for our own good or for your kingdom in us, but for others. Lord, I thank you that you do cause all things to work together for each one of us. Bless each man here. Give us rest and sleep and remind us that we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. Make us to live like that as your people in Jesus' name.